Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn back to the book of Romans as we're going to make some more headway today uh, in this uh, study, particularly in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. A passage personally that I've read many times before, but this week was the first time I really dived into what was going on in this passage, and I found some very interesting, fascinating truths that I'm excited to share with you today. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Father, thank you again for just a full morning of testimony and song and communion. And now, Lord, your word unfolded before us. I pray that your spirit would use uh, the words of this text to prick all of our hearts, Lord, to remind us of that which we need to stay focused on as we live in this sin-cursed world in a sin-cursed body, Lord, that we would find hope in this text to sustain us until that day that we long for when you will return, when Christ returns, and we will become like him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite things that I get to do as a pastor is to visit couples in the hospital right after they've had a baby. And the atmosphere in the room is typically one of rejoicing and relief. Relief that the uncomfortable process of carrying the baby and the painful experience of delivering the baby is over. And rejoicing that they're finally holding in their arms that much anticipated child. Well, this week I had the privilege of visiting Jonathan and Jennifer Marsh after they had their twins, Daniel and Silas, and I got a picture of Jen sitting there in her hospital bed with a baby in both arms with a big smile on her face. Now, I'm pretty sure that Jen would not have wanted me to take a picture of her a few hours earlier (laughs) when she was in labor, when her face was most likely grimacing in pain and possibly crying out in anguish as she endured the agonizing waves of contractions. She also wouldn't want anyone to see a picture of her on those dreadful mornings during her 
pregnancy when she was suffering from nausea or on those unpleasant evenings when she was trying to find a comfortable position to sleep. What consoles and inspires a woman as she endures the nine long, wearisome months of pregnancy and the brief traumatic hours of delivery? What is it? It's the hope of what is to come. What sustains a a pregnant woman during the suffering of childbearing is knowing that everything she has to go through is temporary and that all the agony will eventually result in ecstasy. And the moment that baby is born, all the pain, all the anguish that she had to deal with is quickly forgotten. And that's how it will be when we as believers arrive in heaven. All the pain and anguish that we had to deal with in this lifetime will be quickly forgotten. And like a a woman suffering in the midst of childbearing, we can have hope in the midst of the suffering here on earth by viewing the temporary pain and anguish that we face against the backdrop of our eternal ecstasy. In other words, the, the key to enduring our present difficulty is staying focused on our future destiny. But not just our future destiny, but the future destiny of the entire universe. That's Paul's point here in these verses. And he used the analogy of a woman giving birth to illustrate this point. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. I happen to see another one of the Gals, who's a member of our church, walk in today, great with child, due in two weeks, and uh, all she can pretty much do is kind of, kind of walk around like this with her hands on her stomach, and and I thought, what a beautiful picture of the church. I don't know if you ever thought about us being represented as a as a pregnant mom, but that's what the Bible says we are. And in the last verse of last week's message, you may remember that Paul subtly introduced the subject of suffering. Verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul was explaining how we can know for sure whether or not we're one of God's kids. And one of the marks of a true child of God is that they willingly suffer for the cause of Christ. And in order for us to enjoy the glories of heaven, we must also endure the agonies of earth. And we shouldn't expect to share in Christ's glory if we aren't willing to share in his suffering. We know that Jesus had to suffer all sorts of pain and trials and heartaches, even death here on this earth, before he could return to his glory in heaven. And when he was here, he told his followers that we too would experience all sorts of tribulations and we would be treated just like he was treated. Now, there was no one who understood this better than Paul because his life and ministry were marked by pain and hardship. And when the ship wasn't sinking or he was not being stoned or robbed, he was being whipped within an inch of his life. That was Paul's life. And yet in his mind, whatever he had to endure during this short life here on earth didn't even begin to compare 
with all that he would experience forever in heaven someday. In fact, he said this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. He said, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, it's all about perspective. Yes, we live in fallen bodies, and we live in a fallen world, but there is, a, there is hope for a better life and a better world. And what comforts and sustains us during our present temporary, momentary trials and tribulations is looking ahead to our future eternal glory in heaven, where all of our pain and sorrow will be relieved and everything will be restored to a state of perfection. And it's important that we view God's master plan of redemption, not just personally, but universally. And I think that's why in this passage, Paul provided us a, a panoramic perspective, or for you iPhone users, a pano picture, right? A pano where you can just kind of get the whole wide angle of what's happening there. Uh, and so he provides us this, this pano of what God's future plans for us and the whole universe will look like. And as we're going to see, the destiny of the cosmos is inseparably linked with our destiny as Christians. Whatever happens to us will happen to the rest of God's creation. And there, there's so much more for us to look forward to than just going to heaven. There is the prospect of us being made perfectly conformed to Christ in order to properly reign over the new heavens and the new earth the way God intended for us to do in the beginning. And so here in these verses, verses 18 through 25, Paul explained Two prospects which provide us hope as we patiently endure life's pain and sorrow and eagerly anticipate Christ's return. What are these prospects? Well, number one, creation groans for restoration. Number two, Christians groan for resurrection. And by the way, Paul mentioned three groanings here in Romans chapter 8. The creation groans, Christians groan. And we're going to see, Lord willing, next week, the comforter groans. Notice verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the theme of this passage is really groaning. And, and we know a groan is an expression of anguish to some physical or emotional or spiritual pain. is a cry for deliverance from some torturing or agonizing experience. Like a woman in labor. Well, today we're going to look at the first two groanings in what has been called a symphony of size. I like that expression, a symphony of size. So let's look first of all at how creation groans for restoration. Verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to reveal to us. Now that word consider there is an accounting term. 
And Paul took into account all the sufferings that he had personally endured, and his evaluation or conclusion was that all of them combined were insignificant in comparison to what he would experience in heaven when he would be glorified. And this glory here, when he talks about this, the glory that is to be revealed to us, uh, I think it was not just a place we go, but what will happen to us and what will happen in us. We will be transformed into the likeness of Christ and finally and flawlessly reflect God's glory. I guess we could picture what Paul was saying here as uh, him having a set of scales in front of him and in his mind being permanently delivered from the presence of sin and being perfectly conformed to the image of Christ in heaven far outweighed whatever afflictions that he had to face here on earth. I mean, it didn't even compare. I mean, the scales just went plunk. And so what is the greatest pain or sorrow that you can imagine? Well, what's the greatest pain or sorrow that you can imagine having to face or experience here on this earth? Well, every pain or sorrow that we experience here on earth fades in comparison to the eternal blessings that we'll experience in heaven when we're finally united with Christ in his glory. In fact, I think what Paul was saying is you you can't even compare the two. They're not even in the same league or the same category. Present suffering and eternal glory. It's like those of you that try to compare Whataburger with In-N-Out Burger. Not even in the same category, not even the same league. What are you talking about? I'm just kidding. Okay. But, but, or maybe a better analogy would be like a Ford Focus and a Ferrari. Okay. Not even in the same league, not the same category. What are, what are you talking about? You, you can't even compare the two. Ken Hughes said it this way no matter what we have gone through, are presently going through, or will go through, the sum total is not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. He said, we can compare a thimble of water with the sea, but we cannot compare our sufferings with the coming glory. So Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the ancient, anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That expression there, waits eagerly, is used two other times in this passage. Again, in verse 23, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Verse 25, we eagerly wait for it. It's used four other times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Hebrews. In every case, this is a reference to the return of Christ. What are we eagerly waiting for? Well, notice it says, for the ancient longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. When Christ returns, the world will instantly recognize who the children of God are. Because at present, it's not always evident who the real Christians are. 
but it will become crystal clear at Christ's second coming. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. The sense in this passage of this anxious longing of the creation, waiting eagerly for the revealing of the Son of God, sons of God, it's as if creation is continuously craning its neck, standing on its tippy toes, right? Whenever you want to, you anticipate something, you want to see something, and so what do you do? You stick your head out, and you stand up on your tippy toes. That's the idea here, that creation has this concentrated, undistracted anticipation of that glorious day when God's sons and daughters will be uncovered or unveiled. Why? Why is creation craning its neck and standing on its tippy toes continuously? Well, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, that's a lot that Paul said in those two verses. But essentially what he's saying is that the sin of Adam not only corrupted the entire human race, we learned that back in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And so sin not only corrupted the entire human race, it also corrupted everything else that God created, both animate and inanimate. So we're talking about animals and plants and mountains and oceans and just the, the creation itself. And as a result of Adam's, Adam and Eve's disobedience, God cursed both of them along with Satan and the earth itself. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 verse 14, when God was handing out the curses after Adam and Eve sinned, he said this in verse 14, Genesis 3, 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. Notice he wasn't just cursing the, the serpent. He's saying, oh, you're just going to be cursed more than everybody else. You're going to be cursed more than, you know, the cattle and the other beasts of the fields. But then look at verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." So based on those verses, we know that the entire planet is under the sentence of God's judgment and subject to disorder and deterioration and disease and death, which are all consequences of man's sinful rebellion against God. But again, back in Romans chapter 8, you read verses 20 and 21 and you get the sense that creation was a casualty in man's war against God. 
It was an innocent victim, if you will. It had, had no choice in the matter. And what was meant to be our wonderful, beautiful habitat is now a difficult, dangerous, messed up place for us to live. There are weeds and thorns and venomous snakes and ferocious beasts and birth defects and genetic diseases and the forces of nature in the forms of earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and droughts and famines and avalanches wreak havoc and destruction on us and the earth itself. The world that we're living in is not the world God made at first. Things were not this way before sin entered the world. Originally, the world was a, well, a perfect paradise in which there was no such thing as pain or sorrow or suffering or death or disease. The, the Garden of Eden, right, even to this day, remains the epitome of perfection. And so what Paul is saying here is that creation longs for the day when it can return to its original condition and be the theater of God's glory that he intended it to be. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a massive, I think it's a six or eight volume commentary on the book of Romans. But he ingeniously suggested that creation's innate longing to return to its native state is evidenced by how it tries to recreate itself every year and yet never succeeds. Spring leads to summer and summer leads to autumn and autumn leads to winter and winter leads to spring and on and on it goes. It's an annual effort in futility. It fails to achieve its, its goal, but it, it keeps on trying, nevertheless sensing that just something is not right, trying to fix itself. But creation cannot and will not ever be restored until believers are glorified at the return of Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, the destiny of creation hinges on the destiny of Christians. Creation was ruined when mankind sinned and no longer reflected the glory of God, and creation will be restored to its former glory when we're restored to our former glory. Why? Because in order for creation to be all that God intended it to be, we need to be all that God intended us to be. And you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 2.15 says this, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And so it was our original job as human beings is to rule over and care for and tend to God's creation. But guess what? We messed up. We, we failed at our responsibility. And so creation will never be freed from its slavery to corruption until it is ruled or cared for by human beings who fully reflect God's image. In other words, man in his glorified state. 
Another classic commentator on Romans named Cranfield likened the universe to this magnificent theater and us as the lead actor in a dramatic play. Imagine what it would be like to watch a theatrical or musical production or performance where the main actor or conductor kept forgetting their lines or missing their cues. I mean, what would that look like? All the other actors or musicians would get thrown off. They'd be frustrated. They'd be unable to perform their role successfully. It would be total chaos on the stage. And that's what you have here on planet Earth. Total chaos. Why? Because we, the main actor or the conductor of all this, at least that's the, what God intended us to, 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 the role he intended us to play, we've messed it up. We, we forgot our lines. We, we, we missed our cues. And so creation can't wait for us to get our act together. But we can't get our act together on our own. And that's why God sent Jesus, who perfectly reflected his glory, God's glory, and died in the place of sinful men and women like you, like me, who failed to honor and glorify God. And when Jesus returns, those who believe in him will be transformed into his image so that we reflect God's glory like Jesus did and like Adam and Eve did in the very beginning. And when that happens, Christ will establish his kingdom here on this earth and, will reign with, and we will reign with him, Christians will reign with him during the millennium. We learn about this thousand-year reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20. And during that thousand-year uh, reign of Christ on this present earth, sin will still be present. People will still rebel against God. But in the end, at the end of that thousand years, God will cast Satan into hell along with all those he had deceived. Revelation 20, uh, verses 11 to 15 talks about it. And then God will totally destroy the present universe with fire. We read about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, or excuse me, verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one day, one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to to repentance. And then he goes on to talk about the new heaven and the new earth. He said, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking forward are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so after God destroys this present universe with fire, he will create a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sin. And because there's no sin, there's no pain and 
sorrow or disease or suffering or death. Revelation chapter 21 Verse 1 talks about this, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In other words, the curse of sin will be lifted and earth will be recreated and restored to its perfect state before the fall and God's glory will once again illuminate the earth. We don't have time to look at this, but you might want to jot down Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, and Isaiah 65, verses 17 and 25. That's where we have a description or we find a description of the new heavens and the new earth where the, the lion and the lamb will lie down together. Uh, in other words, they, they'll no longer be eating one another. Um, where the, the child will play at the hole of the cobra. Uh, interesting prophecies there in Isaiah. But all that to say, God's plan of redemption is way bigger than just us going to heaven and not hell. That's just, that's just part of it. There are cosmic ramifications which involves the liberation of creation from its corruption and decay through a complete recreation of the entire universe and we as God's children reigning over it perfectly the way he originally designed us to do. And in the meantime, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Again, Paul likened the longing of creation for this redemption, for this recreation, if you will, this restoration to a woman experiencing labor pains in anticipation of delivering that precious child. And so creation groans for restoration. But secondly, Christians groan for resurrection. Christians groan for resurrection. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The concept of first fruits is from the Old Testament back in Leviticus chapter 23 would be one example where the first fruits were the first portion of the harvest uh, presented as an offering to the Lord. They were regarded as the first installment but also as a pledge or promise of the final delivery of the rest, the rest of the, the harvest. In the Old Testament, God commanded the Jews to celebrate the harvesting of the first fruits at the annual Feast of Weeks. And 
according to God's typological timetable, in other words, there's all sorts of types in the Old Testament pointing to Christ, well, according to that typological timetable, the Holy Spirit arrived in the upper room when the Jews were celebrating, guess what? The Feast of Weeks, the celebration of the harvest of the first fruits. And the Feast of Weeks in Greek is called Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit is regarded as the first fruits of our salvation, which means he serves as the pledge or the promise that God will be faithful to complete his plan of salvation in our lives. Paul mentioned this a number of times, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And in Ephesians 1, 13, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, a promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. And so the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives presently, namely the fruit that he's producing in us, right? The love, joy, peace, patience, all those things is a guarantee of greater things to come. And a foretaste, those things are really just a foretaste of the glories that await us in heaven when our sinful, corrupted, mortal bodies will be changed into sinless, incorruptible, immortal bodies. Notice he says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, that might throw you off a little bit, saying, whoa, whoa, time out. I thought we already were adopted. That's what it says in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So we've already been placed into God's family as his sons, but ultimately our adoption as children of God won't be complete until we're finally released from our unredeemed flesh and receive our glorified bodies. It's what Paul was crying out for in Romans 7, verse 24, when he said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the, what, remember? From the body of this death. Paul talks about this exchange of an earthly tent with a eternal heavenly tent in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it down, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. So while our souls have already been redeemed, we eagerly await the day when our bodies will be redeemed and delivered from sin and all of its negative effects, namely disease, decay, and death. That day, Ephesians 4.30, the sealed for the day of redemption, talking about the return of Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, all of these refer to the rapture. 
when this will take place, when we see Christ and we'll be like him. Notice he says, as he wraps this thought up for in hope, verse 24, we have been saved. We have been saved. But there's still an aspect of the fact that we will be saved from God's wrath and ultimately delivered from sin itself. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. So the idea here is if we had received everything already, we wouldn't have, there would be no need for hope. But we didn't receive everything. We didn't receive all the benefits of our salvation at the moment of conversion. Again, if we did, we wouldn't be hoping for anything else in the future. But we do have hope. We, we live in anticipation of the day when we will experience full and final deliverance from sin and everlasting relief from all of our misery, all of our pain, all of our heartache, and all of our suffering. Notice verse 25, but we, if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Again, as those living in sin-cursed bodies, in a sin-cursed world, we must wait with patient and steadfast endurance in the midst of our present pain and suffering as we look for, as Titus said, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. In fact, it's the painful and sorrowful trials that we are facing in life and that we do have to endure in life. Those are the very things that God uses to increase our faith and to intensify our hope. We learned about that back in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And it's the Holy Spirit himself who uses the word that he inspired men to write to grant us perseverance and hope, Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's exactly what is happening this morning right now. As we are studying God's word together, we are being encouraged to persevere with hope through the promises of Scripture. Again, that's why it's so important that we study God's Word privately and corporately so that we can have hope in all these promises, all these truths that we've talked about here in the last few minutes. So creation groans and Christians groan and the good news is that when Christ came to set us free and set the earth itself free from the curse of sin, he also groaned. You may remember in John chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus arrived at the grave of Lazarus and he saw his sisters, Mary and Martha, weeping and all of the, their friends and, 
and, and family who had gathered there were just weeping. And it says, when Jesus saw the weeping of Mary and Martha and the Jews who came with her weeping, it says he groaned in his spirit. He groaned when he witnessed the pain and the suffering that sin and death was causing mankind, which was the very thing that he came into the world to defeat and destroy. And he arrived at Lazarus' tomb to make war with sin and death. And as you know, he conquered. And not only did he raise Lazarus from the dead, but he rose from the dead. And so, beloved, while life is hard, God grants us grace to hang in there, doesn't he? And whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through right now, it's not always going to be that way. That's good news. It's not always going to be this way. A glory awaits us that is beyond our wildest imaginations. And Paul said here, we are to wait eagerly for it. Can you hear Paul in this text? Wait for it. That's an expression, right, that has become popular in our culture to build suspense or to highlight the epicness of, uh, epicness of something that's about to happen. Wait, wait for it. Wait for it. And so that's what we're being called to do today is is to wait, to wait for it. As I was studying this text, I couldn't help but think of the song that we've been singing recently, I Will Wait For You. I'm gonna invite the band to come up and uh, we're gonna close this morning by singing this song, which I think is a very appropriate response to what we've just studied together. And it's a good reminder that we sing, not because the present is great, but because the future is glorious, amen? In fact, the present right now, your present right now may stink. It may stink. But your future is glorious. And that's a reason to sing, amen? And so let's stand together and um, sing this with all of our hearts.